incredible. Welcome to What. It is your slightly competitive edutainment show featuring me, Ellie Main, and my good friend, Chelsea. What's up, Chelsea? Oh, Ex-mark boy. I mean, I mean, it's a very loaded question to ask someone how you are at the moment. It's true. I feel like, I feel like every time I answer it, I'm like, oh, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no... There's no good way to like be a person and navigate space right now. I want to be like my cat. We recently installed a cat door to the garage. So now he can go in the garage and the garage has become kind of like his bachelor pad. Like when you have an older son who can't like move out and he gets to just have the basement. (laughs) It's like that. So that's for my cat. And there's like an old couch in there that we haven't like gotten rid of because like uh, so much is happening. What? Furniture removal is not at the top of your list right now. It's Chelsea. really For not. Fuck's sake. It's really not at the you top of your list. You promised me you would get rid of that couch. <laughs> I know, I did you promise. You promised. Well, now it's Mamba's like bachelor couch. But the thing is like, sometimes I go into the garage and I turn the light on and he's sitting on the couch and he's not asleep. He's like sitting. And I realized he's just been sitting in the dark for like who knows how long, <laughs> doing nothing and probably thinking nothing. And I'm so- Just existing. And I look at my cat and he looks at me and I'm so goddamn jealous of him. I want to sit in the dark and think about nothing for like a whole day. We are recording this the Monday after the weekend of uh, protests all across America. I think 140 cities now. Yeah. There was a massive protest in Austin and people got hit with rubber bullets and tear gassed. It's a bad time, guys. And so... We wanted to talk a little bit before we get stuck in with learning some things because we do think that sometimes a little brevity and maybe learning something is a great thing to do. Before we jump into that, we wanted to share a couple of uh, resources and ideas of things that you can do if you feel helpless. Charles, take it away. I am taking it away. Yes. No, (laughs) it's very true. Something that I have been working on in my personal life, even even before, you know, unfortunately, like the... Even before the untimely death of George Floyd, which was obviously preceded and proceeded by so many other senseless deaths of Black Americans, Mm -hmm. uh, I've been spending a lot of time trying to think about how to hold multiple feelings in my heart at the same time. Uh, I think it's just, unfortunately, like a necessary part of being a person in the way the world is right now. Uh, And this experience this weekend has been a big practice there because you want to I want to hold obviously I want to hold love and support and empathy for black people who are going through this right now and I want to hold a lot of honestly like a lot of pride um, and a lot of hope when I see people taking direct action and going Mm -hmm. to the streets and standing up for what's right and then obviously I hold deep horror and anger and sorrow when I see um, you know, police sending tear gas at, at peaceful protesters. And, um, yeah. you know, I saw more than I could have handled. I saw a lot of, you know, images of people on social media that uh, uh, who've lost their eyes because yeah. they got hit point blank with beanbags or rubber bullets. I didn't post this on social media because I wasn't sure if that was going to be helpful. Uh, but Connor and I did go to the protest yesterday. It's a difficult decision and something that we kind of like talked about for a while because we're also in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, we have roommates mm-hmm. and, and people that we interact with. But ultimately what we decided was that, you know, 
George Floyd like didn't have the choice to be murdered during a pandemic. So we masked up, we brought sanitizer. Again, in terms of like holding multiple feelings, there were so many people also at the protest who were handing out hand sanitizer. Like people would just snake through the crowd and just hand sanitize anybody who wanted it. People who were giving out water, <laughs> people who were giving out masks. Um, wow. Like even masks that you know that you could take home and like reuse and stuff like that. So there was a really beautiful example of community organizing and, mm -hmm. and community support. It was also really scary. They shot the rubber pellets at us a few times and we weren't doing anything but standing and marching. Like I didn't see anybody get violent. The force that we were met with even in a smaller protest like Austin was, I felt excessive and it sucked. So we're going to have these resources in the show notes of the episode. Yes. First of all, like one of the single best things that you can do with money if you're able is donate to the bail funds for yes. some of the protesters and activists who have been arrested. I'm gonna include a link in the show notes that is really, really helpful and it's put together by Act Blue. And when you click it, uh, when you donate at that place, it will automatically spread Does your that, donation. That, okay, so that's the one that disperses it amongst where all the places that are needing it right now? Yeah, I believe the number right now is 32. Great. I do think that there is power and social pressure. So for example, one of the best things I saw, there was a Twitter chain of predominantly white celebrities like posting screenshots that they had, they had like created a chain of each of them donating $50. And so that everybody replied with like a screenshot of their like net worth from Google. Ooh. Where it was like, hey, Seth Rogen, you have like $40 million. Like maybe you could give a little bit more than 50. And yeah. some of them did. Some of them came back and said, you're right. And they like upped their donation or they doubled their donation. So social That's pressure awesome. can work. And I think that donating is good. But if you can't, sharing a lot of those things, reaching out to content creators, people with platforms and urging them to get involved in some way. I was really excited to see Miles um, doing the live streaming. Like those yeah. kinds of things, they really matter um, because we are social creatures at heart. Here's one that's really exciting and I think uh, a lot of people don't know about is that for example, Austin right now, they have a survey online put up by the city that's a budget survey. And most major oh, yeah. cities do this. And so you go on and you put out uh, how you think kind of the budget should be set up. So that's where you can say, for example, that you think that more money should be sent to de-escalation techniques and training for the police or racial sensitivity training. Or oh. um, maybe, you know, for example, you don't want your police department to be able to buy a fucking tank from the United States <laughs> military. Just as an example. Just as yeah. an example. These are all crazy, things. crazy hypothetical. Yeah. So I'll have the link there to the one for Austin. And then also I'm going to find some information about how you can find that information for your city. And then another example that I read that I think is really interesting, and this is for something that you can do for free outside of your house, if that's something that you're interested in, is everyone should think about you your hobbies and the things that you love to do and how you can weaponize that against anti-blackness and uh, against racism and against police brutality. So for example, my new quarantine hobby has been roller skating. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> uh, in starting to learn more about roller skating and the roller skating community, I've learned, shocking, because this is America, it's also steeped in racism and huh. roller skating is, yeah, I don't, I, are you shocked? Like, can you believe? Um, I can't believe that. Right? 
I know. Yeah. So yeah, roller skating was something that really came up in the black community. And then of course, like around like the sixties and seventies, we want it. White people were like, oh, this would be cool. And they took it. And there's a lot of rules at like skating rinks that are holdovers from segregation and anti-blackness. And then there are people who are putting together lists of email addresses and phone numbers for different states that you can call to encourage the arrests of police officers who have been documented on video using illegal techniques on protesters and civilians or to help to negotiate bail or release for activists who haven't done anything wrong. So those are just some examples um, of some positive steps that you can take. Some, Some cost money, some don't. Some involve leaving your house, some don't. And all of those things and more we're gonna have in the show notes of today's episode. Chelsea, thank you. On with the episode. On with a bit of fun distraction, hopefully. Um, we hope that this this can make you just, if not laugh, then smile in a tough time. And welcome back, Mitch. Thank you for uh, thank you for being with us today. Oh, anytime. This week we're going to try something a little different in that Chelsea and I are going to compete for Mitch's favor. <laughs> yes. In a battle of brains. Chelsea and I are going to present our topics and Mitch gets the, hopefully, absolute pleasure of deciding which was his favorite and awarding points to correspond with that. Mitch, do you think you're up to the task? I believe I am. I like that I said that like, you're like a, a kid in a game show who gets to be the judge. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Legends of the Hidden Temple. not a good thing question mark should be the title but my original title was <laughs> this one's for miles oh this, this one's, one's for, for i mean miles. that and it's because of something that miles was recently talking about this one's for miles miles talks a lot about game design like a lot like a yeah. like a lot he does talk a lot about game design but that would be a good thing probably i mean i'm thinking food does that have something thinking... to do with voice acting no oh. no Oh, was it that guy? Or people were upset because he had said something in a tweet uh, like four or five years ago. Oh, oh. no, not that bad. Dredging? <laughs> social media dredging? One. No, it's not about social media dredging. <laughs> but you are, you're, gosh, judge. Has anybody ever been a better judge than you, Mitch? First of all, let me just go ahead and say, you're like, you're so <laughs> Whoa, handsome. okay, pandering. You're so handsome, you're oh so intelligent, goodness. and you're also so close. Now I see why you suggested this format. <laughs> I see. Try it. Just try it. I will, just try it. <laughs> I will note your praise okay. for later. My title is The True Best Friend. <gasps> Oh, it's about me. Is it about the making of Homeward Bound? Is it about the making of Milo and Otis? Because that's I just hope wild. Not. That, that is an upsetting story. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm afraid to disappoint you. It is not. Can you real quick change it to that and go look up Milo and Otis real quick? Yeah, they oh, yeah, should yeah, have yeah. named that movie Milo's and Otis's. That's what oh. they should have named. Spoiler. Is it about... Mm the hit late 90s early 2000s nickelodeon show my cousin skeeter oh ellie is it ellie is it yeah yep do you guys have like an hour before we <laughs> jump in <laughs> <laughs> wait this is really important though have you seen cousin skeeter no 
Oh, we're gonna change that. Also, I want you to go tell Miles and like while I'm on FaceTime that you haven't seen it, see if maybe he cries. Our new favorite stupid in joke is if he doesn't uh he like he has really bad hearing and so I have to th- say things like three times and the last time that happened I just went, Why don't you listen? Aww. <laughs> Why is his hearing so bad? Is, was he like a headbanger in high school and we just don't know about it? I think he's just so loud that he's like Dis- like yeah. disintegrated he's, his own ears. He's blown out his time. own eardrums. Yeah. Screaming. With his hyena laugh. I did one of those stupid like musicals in like elementary school where it was made for a school. So like every song was for like one class to do. And the best one was the Jaguars because they were party animals and they had kind of like a hip hop song that was like, we are party animals, but we didn't get to be them. We had to be the hyenas and our song was about laughing. Aww. And it was really bad and embarrassing. I played an attorney in Bible court when I was like eight <laughs> years old. I was representing, I believe, Cain in Bible court in for Bible the murder court. of Abel at age eight. <laughs> but I nailed it. I did great. Chelsea has been destroyed by this news. <laughs> did you hold yourself in contempt? <laughs> Jesus. I mean, I was raised Catholic, but that's some fucked up shit. <laughs> this topic like so many of my topics uh is something that's been kind of like in the background of my thought process for a while but i hadn't Mm -hmm. taken the time to fully research it but then i had two experiences that happened this weekend that made me feel like oh now is the time the first one was at the Austin protests. Everybody was meeting up at the Capitol uh, and there were people who were in front of the Capitol and they were speaking. And, you know, they were speaking generally about some of like the experiences of excessive force that black people have experienced here in Austin with APD. Uh, And they were talking as well as like more generally about the current climate, about George Floyd and Minneapolis. And at one point during this, they said, hey, can I get everyone who's not black to take a knee. Everybody who wasn't black took a knee, but there were some people who for a second, they looked a little bit confused about whether or not they were supposed to do that. And so then the man who was speaking, he reiterated and he said, now I know there's like a lot of people here who are people of color, but right now we're not talking about anybody who's not white. We're talking about anybody who's not black. And so then that kind of cleared that up. And then everybody who was not black took a knee and we kind of went through a call and response. Um, And it was a really positive experience about us as non-black people acknowledging, seeing, and like supporting black people in our community. And then black people getting to receive that support from us. But what it made me think about was something that I have, I've had a lot of discussions with different friends, including Miles, which is Connects, about how in America, there is being not white, which is something that I've had experience with, but there's also being not black because in America, so much of our experiences with racism are rooted specifically in anti-blackness. And I feel like a lot of times us as non-black people of color, have to take a step back and appreciate what that means and appreciate how, not all the time, because race is like such a 
complicated social construct, but sometimes the experiences that non-Black people of color have in America are still rooted in anti-Blackness. Okay. The second experience that I had this weekend that connected with that was I saw Miles tweets, so like this is where it becomes about Miles. Um, mm -hmm. Shout out to Miles, sweet angel boy. Uh, so <laughs> he wrote a tweet about saying like, he's, I think he started it as like, as a white person, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to help in this way. And then a lot yes. of people were responding and saying, hey, Miles, like, you're not white, you know, like, you're Latinx. And he kind of came back and was like, you know, like, I, this is something that I struggle with, like, in my personal life, because, like, I have, like, mixed heritage, and I know that I'm white passing. And that's something that Miles and I have definitely had, like, numerous discussions about as friends, as people who are definitely, like, in some like circles white passing people of color and like the privilege that that entails right when i saw that tweet from him like i immediately understood why he wrote it this is something specifically about the black experience which is so mm -hmm. different than anything that miles or i i'm like speaking for miles in this moment have experienced but like i just like understood having that experience and then seeing like both miles tweet and like the reaction to it started to get me thinking about okay, what are some ways in which I haven't been like critical of the way that we interact with race in America? And then also like, what would be an interesting way to kind of talk about some of these themes? Have you guys ever wondered why, like on the census or any other government documents, there's like race and ethnicity and the only ethnicity is Latinx? And then no. all the other, have you guys ever noticed that? I didn't even know that. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I didn't notice it. You haven't noticed it? It's... I just look for white as hell and then check it off. <laughs> check that off. So when you apply for a job, for example, I think that's where I see it the most. And it's an equal opportunity employer. They'll ask you a few different questions. They'll ask you if you have a disability. They'll ask you if you, you're veteran or military status. And they'll ask you about your race and ethnicity. Right. And under race, there will usually be some core categories uh, that you see across most things. Uh, and then ethnicity will just say, do you identify as Hispanic slash Latino or do you not identify as Hispanic slash right. Latino? That is interesting. And it's something that I have, I have tried to find an answer to and find, trying to find the answer to this has led to more questions than answers. So first of all, I just went to the census.gov website, right? Because almost all of this information usually starts from the census, which as you guys probably know, like happens every 10 years. It's happened pretty much since the beginning of the country, happens in other countries. Right. It's generally the way that the government gathers demographic data across a lot of things. This is what the census.gov website says. What is race? The Census Bureau defines race as a person's self-identification with one or more social groups. What is ethnicity? Ethnicity determines whether a person is Hispanic origin or not. And I was like, oh, okay. Interesting. That's Interesting. <laughs> I didn't really answer it. Because when you get into kind of colloquial understandings of the terms race and ethnicity, first of all, our understanding of race in modern times is that it's a social construct, right? It's pretty much exactly what the census website said, which is that it's like this large, it's a huge like melting pot of factors. Right. And ethnicity is often used at least colloquially interchangeably with race. Sometimes right. uh, it seems to be when people kind of hone in on a very specific country of origin. I hear ethnicity used a lot that way. That's not what the census says, right? The census just says ethnicity is only whether or not you're Hisp Hispanic or Latino. So I dug in a little bit more. I went to the Pew Research Institute, looked at some of their mm -hmm. information. And the, the biggest thing that I got 
two big things. One, I think that what is happening, what we're seeing is we're in kind of a middle place in our constantly evolving understanding of race and what it means in America. And this middle ground is people realizing that you can be Latinx and any race, right? Because there are, there are white Latinx people, like people from like Spain or Portugal would be one example. You can definitely be black and Latinx, right? Cause you can be like Afro-Cuban or as one example. You can definitely be Middle Eastern and Latinx. You can be Asian and Latinx. You can be Filipino or Filipina. So that I think is where this started to come out. You can be a lot of different things because humanity is a huge, vast, wide expanse of, of lived experiences, right? Um, The other interesting thing that we saw from the Pew Research Center is that if you ask Hispanic adults in America, most say being Hispanic is their racial background, not their ethnic background. So this idea of Hispanic being an ethnic marker separate from race, which is how the United States is trying to kind of push it right now, isn't actually reflected at least according to research, in most people's sort of like lived understanding of their own experience. Right. Which is also fascinating. Yes. When I saw that, I thought I wanted to go back and learn more about the history of the census in the United States. And who are you guys? These are some fun facts coming to you from the history of the United States census. First of all, I I want you to put in like a census facts. The original population of the United States in the first recorded census, which was in 1790, so we're talking like, what, 15, 20 years after the creation of the country, was around 4 million people. So we've gone from 4 million to 330 million. That's fun. As most of our experiences as like, I don't know, Gen Xers, Millennials, Gen Z, whatever, is having the census mailed to us and us filling it out. But back in the day, they had census takers. So it was real similar to, isn't that also like, isn't that the Jesus story? Help me out here, uh, attorney at law. Isn't it like, oh. they, that's why he had to go to Bethlehem, right? Because like they well, were it's why, his, it's why his parents went to Bethlehem. Yeah. So that was year zero. By 1790, we've really advanced in census taking technology. And now they just send a dude to your house, to everybody's house. And they talk to them. And they do this for a while. This is how they broke down race in 1790 in the United States. I'm scared. I'm a little scared. Not going to like it. There were free white males who were at least 16. There were free white males under 16. There were free white females there were any other free persons and there were slaves so slave was considered a race yes it was uh, for the census taking purposes yes i know they didn't use the word race at that time they used the word blood so again because race is a social construct this is this was a word that they came up with later to try to bury the lead on that one what is your blood (laughs) what's your blood it also i think is a really good example of illustrating what i was talking about in terms of like the racism that some of us as people of color in the United States experience is still rooted in anti-blackness. So you kind of see this here where like there's Mm -hmm. clearly a dichotomy in this information between white people, slaves, and then anyone else. Right. They didn't really matter, right? Like third bucket. And then also like anybody else, who cares? Yeah. Uh, One last thing I just want to point out, it's slightly off topic, but I think it's important in terms of like just things that we don't always get to see even when we study history in school. Uh, So I'm looking at this table right now 
of the breakdown of these different groups from the 1790 mm. census and looking at for example like vermont right which was a northern state vermont has zero slaves it has roughly i would say about 48,000 free white men and 40,000 free white women and 200 other people so about 80,000 people altogether in the state of vermont in 1790 200? 200 people who were not considered white and remember, this is this is not considered white by a dude who came to your house and looked at you. And oh was, my gosh, you had like swatches. Oh, 100%, yes. So now let's look at Virginia, which was a slave state in 1790. Oui. Virginia had around 200,000 white men, 200,000 white women, and 300,000 slaves. <gasps> so... Sometimes oh. I feel like when we see images of slavery, like depictions of slavery, it's like this idea of just like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess there were some people somewhere who had like a plantation and I guess they might have had a slave or two. No, this was like huge portions of the population. In some places yeah. it even like nearly outnumbered or at least equaled the amount of, um, of free people. So when black people say they built this country, they're being very, very serious. Um, yeah. So that was in 1790. <laughs> Moving into the 19th century, which would be the 1800s. This is when, you know, obviously, especially like around 1850, 1860s, there started, you know, we had the great emancipation. There were more issues with how to talk about different people. So that's when you start to see the language move from slaves to Negro or black. And again, so what they would do is they would just, they just had a column when they would go down and do the census. Uh, census takers would write a B if the person was black, blank if the person was white, because again, there's no need to mark that they had a race if they were white, because that was the regular, <laughs> right? Right. So you don't mark anything. Uh, and then you marked an M if the person was mulatto, which is an outdated term for somebody of mixed race. By 1890, uh, at this point, you know, slavery has been outlawed, not segregation, let's be real, but like slavery has been outlawed for about 30, 40 years. And we've also had a large influx of people from Eastern Asia, primarily on the West Coast. They built all the railroads over there. So you can say thank you for that. And so now we start to, we start to finally see this issue of like census takers going out and being like, well, gosh, I'm just gosh darn confused about this one. You're telling me this person's not black, but they're also not white? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? And this to me is also like a hilarious example of just how arbitrary a social construct race is, right? Is that what you see from like around 1880, 1890, all the way through to like the 60s or 70s, is that basically anytime they kind of remembered that somebody else existed, they would just add them to the list. So in 1890, the options for race, uh, like imagine like you're applying for a job right now and this is what you see. It's white, black, mulatto, which we covered, quadroon, which is a quarter of black blood, octoroon, which is an eighth of black blood, Chinese, Japanese, or Indian. That's just it. Well, those that's are, it. Those are, those are all the available races in the world. Those are your options. <laughs> those are your options. And the reason that things like mulatto quadroon and octoroon became a thing is because I'm sure you guys have heard of like the one drop rule, which was just this idea under the government that if you had any black ancestry at all, that you were black. Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. The 1940 census, that was when Franklin D. Roosevelt was president. Uh, this is when you start to see that the United States has realized that 
Latinx people exist. And specifically, <laughs> Franklin D. Roosevelt, one of his like big policy initiatives was this idea of being a good neighbor with Mexico and like increasing diplomatic relations with Mexico. And so, this is fun. In 1935, before the census, there was a famous court case where a federal judge ruled that Mexican immigrants couldn't be citizens. Because let's remember that even as late as 1935, if you weren't a white dude, you didn't have citizenship and you couldn't vote. So these right. Mexican immigrants were like, well, we're not black because again, racism in America is rooted in anti-blackness. Well, right. we're not black. So why can't we, why can't we be citizens? Why can't we get naturalized and vote? Uh, and they said, well, no, cause you're like, look at you, you're not white. Then Roosevelt <laughs> came in, Roosevelt came in and said, well, hey, People from Mexico. Come on were, now, guys. Yeah, people from Mexico were actually uh, pretty cool. So he circumvented the federal judge and uh, said, in the eyes of the federal government, people from Mexico are white. Because it's not about saying that people from Mexico or other Latinx people are people, it's about saying that they're white. It's not about actually seeing them. Right. It's like, we'll put them in the, they can be in the not black group. Mm. So yes. that is why in 1940, the race category of Mexican was, was added. So now you can be Chinese, Japanese, Korean, mulatto, black, white, or Mexican. Now these are your options as a person. A really fun other aside, just about racism and, and terribleness, is that, so we know that during World War II, the United States set up Japanese internment camps and put Japanese Americans in concentration camps and then refused to acknowledge having done that for like 50 years. Well, yep. do you know where they found out who was the Japanese American and where they lived? From the 1940 census. They used that information <gasps> to round up Japanese Americans and put them in oh. internment camps and they denied it until 2007. Which, oh. just so you remember, 2007, uh, we did have Facebook, we didn't have Twitter yet. But we were oh, very much so like weird. in the time of now. Yeah, I remember reading about, so in eighth grade, uh, I had an amazing eighth grade English teacher named Frank Westerman, but he had us- Shout you know, out? And, yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> I, I hope he's still around. He was an older dude. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, you know, he, he was a Korean War vet and we read, you know, Night by Ellie Wazell. And then he had us read a book called Farewell to Manzanar which is about it's a mm. direct account from being inside these japanese internment camps and like so it was something i was grew up aware from at least from my ed education but i didn't realize that the federal government didn't recognize this until 2007 which is three years after i'd even read this book wow so yeah. that's very that's upsetting <laughs> I didn't learn about it until college because the United States doesn't like to talk about it. Like they love to talk about like, you know, how we were correct to spend like most of the 20th century trying to control the governments of all these other countries because they were democratic, but they wouldn't own up to the fact that we imprisoned, you know, citizens who were non-dissident uh, in our own country for years. Actually, uh, George Takei, who is on Star Trek, talks a lot. He wrote a, a play about his experiences as a child in a Japanese wow. internment camp. So yeah, so back to the fun things with the census. They finally, for the first time, took the word color out of the racial question in the year 1950. Uh, mm -hmm. But they put it right <laughs> But they put it right back in in 1960. They were like, you know, like, hang on, that was a hang on and back. <laughs> it is about people's color. So we're going to want to put that back in. Um, we're actually still on this. We're still on this, actually. <laughs> we're still trying to solve this color problem. They removed it again in 1980 and it has been blissfully gone since then. In 1980, they, at this point, it was 
so complicated that they had, for example, option you could choose under your race, Vietnamese Indian parentheses East, because not Native American, because this was when we were just now starting to talk about the fact that maybe we shouldn't call them Indians. Guamanian, <laughs> Samoan, Aleut. And then also you had to answer a like 10 part questionnaire about what country were you born in? What language do you speak at home? And there was, you know, a lot of concern with the 2020 census that it was going to, they would use it to document possibly undocumented people. Use it to track down undocumented people. Uh, which there's precedence for. See the conversation we just had about Japanese Americans. So right. it's, it's a real catch-22 because the census is important in terms of like, it's literally how the government decides to give your community money for things like roads and education. So you want to accurately explain how many people live there and use services but not if as a result they're going to arrest you yeah but not if it's going to put your community in danger so it's great that's just like a fun trip through census memory lane the last part which brings us to 2020 and it also connects back around to my personal experience in 2020 they're finally addressing the fact that despite i don't know the last 20 years if not more of experiences um, of Middle Eastern people in the United States that maybe it doesn't make a ton of sense for Middle Eastern people to be counted as white or as it's written in the census, near Easterners. So, which is fun. The term that I like to use that I think is like the best one that we have right now is MENA. So it's like Middle Eastern North African. Mm -hmm. For MENA people in the United States, there was a time, particularly in like the early to mid part of the 20th century, where we were desperate to be seen as white. Because as you can see from the history of the census, if you get that white designation, ooh, baby, you're doing good, right? Like, yeah. you got to go and bag FDR and be like, oh, please. And he's like, okay, please, fine, you get please. to be white. Um, and it reminds me of a very personal story from my grandfather. My grandfather was a very complicated man. I think that all of us who have family members who are older grapple with their olderness. Uh, and he was a complicated man and he wasn't a perfect man, but, you know, he, he shared a lot about like our family's experiences in Lebanon and and moving to the United States that were really formative for me. But one thing that he shared that was always a a story that was difficult for me to kind of grapple with uh, in terms of like a man that I loved and a story that I did not love is uh, he would tell me about his experiences moving from Brooklyn to San Antonio in the 50s, Mm. which was a real culture shock. And when he moved here, when he moved to San Antonio, uh, they would make him and his brother sit at the back of the bus because to the bus driver in San Antonio, they were not white. And so if you weren't white, you went to the back of the bus. And this was such a shock for my Jiddu who had lived in Brooklyn and where there was, you know, a much kind of like wider racial diversity at the time and now. To be treated this way, again, rooted in anti-blackness, but he couldn't see it that way, to be treated with racism was so confusing to him. And it was to the point where for the rest of their time in school, he and his brother would hop trains and take the train to get around because they were so ashamed at the idea of having to sit in the back of the bus. And that's like a difficult story for, for me because that story is kind of racist. Like that's a story about my grandfather not wanting to be treated like a black person. Mm. sucks but it's also for him it was a story of being confronted with racism which is necessarily rooted in anti-blackness in america and not knowing what to do 
Yeah. Uh, so when I hear that, I'm like, oh, that is why in the 50s and 60s, like the Arab American Association, everybody else were like, please, we are white. Let us be right. white. And it worked. It finally worked. And they finally got to be added officially on the census under like the white category. And then a spooky thing called 9-11 happened. And then they were like, wait, <laughs> hold on. Yeah. And, and it became this big issue over the last 20 years. Um, and it's a huge point of contention in like Arab American activism uh, yeah. of just like, Oh, well, we fought so hard to be seen as white, but now in like actual day-to-day -day life, we're never seen as white, but we also don't count as not white. So right. they spent a lot of time lobbying the government to add uh, MENA as its own category in the census. And the government was like, oh, that sounds hard. And we're already in so much trouble for even just having this as a fucking thing in the first place. So but instead, I already typed it. I already typed it. <laughs> and everybody hates it. So now like, yeah, like the racial category in uh, the census can't go away because racism hasn't gone away. So therefore the information is valuable in terms of how communities are being treated. But they're like, yeah, we know this is sucks and shitty and racism a real thing. Uh, so now we're just gonna let you write whatever the fuck you want. I don't know. <laughs> so, so that's where we're at and that's where they've left it and that's where they've left it for the 2020 census so and if you're looking to write an angry letter to my jitu you better address it to heaven because he's dead <laughs> so <laughs> 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 you, you can get you can get uh, Mitch Donahue uh, attorney what a twist. To, yeah, uh, what a twist. to address that grievance Mitch what'd you think uh, I'm sorry Mitch I mean, Esquire Mitchell Donahue Esquire yeah attorney of Christ um, <laughs> I I mean I thought it was great it was really informative I didn't know a lot about mm -hmm. that uh, I'm always fascinated by kind of like just where a lot of our history as Americans come from and how it gets just skewed over time. And I bet every country, I mean, I'm sure Ellie looking at policies and stuff that you have in Britain, it's especially with how long Britain's been around. It's gotta be really fascinating watching the evolution oh, yeah. over time for that. Well, I'll tell you the thing that happens in England that doesn't happen here is that our the history teachers are like, okay guys, buckle up. <laughs> it's not good we've done some really terrible things yeah i thought it was fascinating i'm gonna start you off at just 10 points out the gate i'm gonna subtract one point because it was very difficult to make funny comments through the <laughs> <entire presentation. laughs> oh even when i said my grandfather was dead well that just made me laugh really <laughs> grown up in san antonio my entire life born and raised and i've been to the alamo dozens of times and i remember learning uh in school you know when we went to war with mexico and the whole point of the alamo stand was that we were declaring our independence but a huge part of that which is not something i learned till recently was that it was because mexico had declared slavery illegal and oh. that all of these texans that had come to settle uh, Texas did not want to give up their slaves. So that was a huge part oh. of 
Texas's Ooh. independence. And, you know, that's something that's coming out right now. There's a big issue right now with uh, the Cenotaph, which is like a memorial that was built by the Daughters of the Confederacy, which is a whole other issue that's in front of the Alamo, <laughs> at, at, right in front of Alamo Plaza. They're not even discussing getting rid of it. They're just, they're renovating Alamo Plaza and they want to move it like one block. And people have, uh, you know, the Texas Freedom Force, which is a group of, you know, armed, I guess, protesters are guarding it to keep people from defacing it, which, you know, I don't think defacing a monument is the right message right now either. But it is interesting that, you know, I've I had to take a year of Texas history in seventh grade. I've been steeped in Texas history and it was just it's been eye-opening to hear that like one of the culminating events for the entire war that Texas waged against Mexico was that they didn't want to give up their slaves. And it's upsetting that I'm at 30 years old just now finding out about that. That's wild. I mean, I was today years old. jump into a slightly more light-hearted topic which i think is going to be a nice little palate cleanser for us hopefully i'm oh actually i'd be surprised if neither of you have heard of the syndrome or condition which doesn't sound great but we'll get there um that i'm going to talk about today do either of you know about williams syndrome no william no i don't think so i really thought that charles you were going to know about this i don't think so not so far at least because you know so much about medical things oh well And you know what? I just like to be complimentary to my competitors in this, uh, you know, knowledge game that we have. I like to be sweet. Just something about me. Um, So noted. Noted. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Let's stick to the facts. So Williams syndrome is much like Down syndrome. It's a genetic disease. It's present at birth. It can affect absolutely anyone. And it's characterized by cardiovascular disease and developmental delays, learning challenges. But there is a huge positive side to this condition. And I I kind of use that word a little, um, well, we'll dig into it. So children with Williams syndrome and children who grow into adults with Williams syndrome tend to be super friendly, super social, trusting everyone, full of joy all the time, just like sweet bubbly, extroverted, joyful people who have an affinity for music, highly, highly social personalities. And they started digging into the genes around this condition and they found something very, very interesting that I'm gonna link us to in a second here. So um, I wanted to start off by sharing a story uh, from a blog from, from a woman who found out she was pregnant and her baby had Williams syndrome. And obviously at first she was terrified of this idea of bringing up a child with learning difficulties, maybe physical difficulties. And I was reading through this blog and it just struck me of like how genuinely she meant what she says here. It's from williamsyndrome.org and it's by Ricky Morris, who's a guest blogger on the site. So she was terrified of, of having this baby. Her baby's called Coralie. This is what she writes. I didn't see then that Williams syndrome isn't about what's missing. It's about the rare gifts that inexplicably fill the gaps of those missing pieces. Coralie's first words weren't mama and dada. They were, hi, and I love you. That's the most, perf- <laughs> the most perfect description of Williams syndrome I could offer. These words weren't reserved only for family members. They were and are shared with everyone within a mile radius, along with the happiest, brightest smile you'll ever see. In a world where people walk around inside their own private bubbles, absorbed in their own worries and obligations, Coralie has a special magnetism that draws people out and forces them to share a moment of joy with her. She affects people in a way I've never seen before. 
Another mother recently made the comment that kids with Williams syndrome light up the world. I believe that. I believe that kindness and joy are contagious and kids with Williams syndrome start small fires of it wherever they go. They will teach you things about life that you thought you already knew, that each and every moment is a gift, even the difficult ones, and nothing should ever be taken for granted. Because nothing is guaranteed to anyone, and most importantly, having a child with Williams syndrome isn't the end of the world, it's the beginning. And I thought that was such a cute and amazing way to talk about being around someone who's just totally joyful and happy all the time even if it's the result of a condition it's like described by a lot of parents as a blessing more than anything else of like my kid will always choose to be happy in the face of any kind of adversity but i don't want to just talk about williams syndrome as a condition in people i want to talk about the fairly recent scientific link made between williams syndrome and our domesticated animals. Ooh. Mm, interesting. I was just about to, okay, so I was wondering where this was gonna go because, I, so once you said that, I think I have read a little bit, or I've heard of Williams Syndrome, um, especially, I, I guess like this just is a fun way to like show off yours and my personalities because I've read about it in terms of, it's come up in arguments against eugenics, which you know mm. is when you like selectively choose for yeah. like certain genes and so, sometimes people will offer anecdotal evidence of like, there are some countries in Europe where they've basically, they've done a lot of work to the point where like, they don't have people with Down syndrome anymore because they've just selected away from that. And so then people will use anecdotal stories yeah. of people with both Down syndrome and Williams syndrome to talk about sort of like genetic diversity. Uh, life is, yeah, life is a genetically different. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's actually even still legal to terminate a pregnancy if you find that they have Down syndrome up till birth. Up to birth? Is, yeah. Oof. So the first hint of a link between, was gonna specifically look at dogs for this between dogs and Williams syndrome came in 2010. An evolutionary biologist, Bridget von Holt, amazing, and her <laughs> colleagues examined DNA from 225 wolves and 912 dogs from 85 different breeds. They were looking for parts of the genome that would have been shaped by selection since dogs diverged from wolves. One gene that popped out was, and you know, I don't expect you to remember this, WBSCR17. Writing sure. it down. Put that in your pocket. <laughs> so this gene popped out suggesting it or other genes near it were important in dog evolution. So they decided to concentrate on that. So to Bridget von Holt's 11 month old sheepdog Marla, the entire world is a friend she has yet to meet is what she oh. says. <laughs> She's hypersocial. I even had her genotyped. Van Holt's huh. interest is no casual curiosity. She's a Princeton evolutionary biologist and colleagues have spent between 2014 and 2017 studying this genetic basis. The studies that they did showed that dogs are more sociable than wolves raised in similar circumstances. So even if you try and raise a wolf like a dog, dogs are far, still far, far more sociable, generally paying more attention to humans and following directions and commands more effectively. This we know about trained dogs. Yeah. Since evolving from a shared ancestor with wolves at least 10,000 years ago, which is when they think this development that changed wolves into dogs happened, domestic dogs helped us find food, protected uh, for us from becoming dinner for other people, all while providing a friendly face and a wagging tail. That's from a National Geographic article. And it's become kind of like in the scientific community, something that they call a sexy question like understanding how our best Ooh. friends from chihuahuas to mastiffs became what they are now. It's like, mm, such a hot little question. I mean, that is sexy. Yeah. This I is think chihuahua, to... I think sexy. So here's an example of one of the studies they did. 
In 2010, in collaboration with Monique Udell, an animal behaviorist at Oregon State University, we're jumping around many universities here, <laughs> Bridget von Holt searched the dog and wolf genomes and identified alterations in this special gene that occurred during dog domestication. And the project lay dormant for a while where they had to set up more funding because scientists, <laughs> until they got 18 dogs of various breeds, Dachshunds, Jack Russell Terriers, Bernese Mountain Dogs, and 10 wolves habituated to humans. So 10 wolves that aren't going to maul you. This sounds um, like the worst season of Big Brother. <laughs> Just dogs. Yeah. <laughs> We've got, what did you say? We've got Dachshunds, Jack Russells, Russell's. A, f- a few of the other fancy when you said, and 10 wolves. Let's see. Let's see what happens. <laughs> So the scientists trained all the animals to open a box that contained a piece of sausage. And then they asked the canines to open the box while in three separate situations. One with a familiar human present, one with an unfamiliar human, and one alone without a person there at all. And during all three of these scenarios, the wolves outperformed the dogs by a huge margin, which got even larger when the dogs had to open the box in the presence of people. And Bridget von Holt says, it's not that they couldn't solve the puzzle. They were just too busy looking at the human to do it. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. They're just like, what are you, friend? I don't even need this sausage right now. I'll get to it. But let me just hang out with you. That's fun. So then she did some more ad- additional genetic analysis of that part of the genome. And uh, she found two of these genes nearby. Uh, they, these genes, I mean, I'll read them, but don't remember them. Please don't. GTF2I and GTF2IRD1. She'll sound like droids, but so she found these In two genes that were super near this uh, this special gene that domesticates dogs. The combination of the genetic and behavioral data told von Holt that changes to this region of the gene is what helped turn wolves into human-loving dogs. Hypersocial dogs carry variants of those two genes, and the deletion of those two genes causes Williams syndrome in people. Wow, weird. So, See, that's that's so fascinating to me because. Like the I don't know about you guys, but like the place that my mind goes when I hear this is like another sexy little question that scientists have like puzzled <laughs> over for a god like eons is like nature versus nurture, right? Like if mm-hmm. you're a sweet, happy, sensitive person, how much of that is innate in you versus how much yeah. is taught to you by your parents or your social groups or whatever? And I think there, I mean, my my f- personal view is that it's like a complicated chemistry equation that just has mm-hmm. like a lot of you know, moving parts, but it is fascinating whenever I hear things about that, where it's just like, no, like there's like a nice gene, right? Like there's just like a there's friendly a nice gene. gene. There's a friendly, happy gene <laughs> who make that makes you like love other people and just be like, hey, what's up, new friend? Right. Um, dude, brain so- be crazy. <laughs> brains be crazy. And here's the theory: is that unwittingly, humans bred a genetic mutation into wolves. To not, it wasn't just like hang out with us long enough and like take care of our fire with us and then like over time you'll become real sweet they found a sweet wolf and then that was the one that they bred from over and over and over and over again until essentially dogs are just friendly wolves <laughs> these are the current theories of dog domestication because like i said this was like ten thousand years ago so no one has like a record of how this was done or how it happened no one wrote a book about it no one wrote a bit of well kind of scientists now <laughs> so, <laughs> so what i mean once Researchers assumed that ancient humans domesticated dogs on purpose, adopting adopting wolf pups and breeding them for useful traits, kind of like how 
people do with like kennel club dogs now. But these biologists, Ray and Lorna Coppinger, have pioneered a different view, seeing early dogs as scavengers on human trash. According to this theory, shy wolves, don't look at me, I'm shy, continued to hunt in the forest, while bolder wolves that could tolerate humans took up residence at village rubbish heaps. They were like, you guys aren't that bad. I'm gonna hang out here. I get the better food that way. And it's easier. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I do like that. Um, But according to Clive Wynn, a behavioral scientist at Arizona State University, sociability could have been a key trait that helped early dogs get access to human scraps. The new study suggests that dogs achieved that friendliness in part through changes to the genes that are equivalent to those affected in people with Williams syndrome. He says this. Outside of like, this is literally how it's written down, outside of like Disney movies, animals all just making friends with each other and being lovey-dovey out in the forest is pretty much a catastrophe. (laughs) But if you have a mutation that makes you more willing to make friends, well, then you're going to get a lot more out of the trash dump. That's true. That's how I, that's what I always say. Like, I'm like, hey. <laughs> this is what I, all, I am going to get more out of the trash dump if I'm nice to you. <laughs> yeah, look, we're all going to get more out of this trash if we're just kind to each other. Oh, another great shirt. <laughs> <laughs> get more out of the trash. Be sweet. Be sweet. Get more trash. It's unclear whether this happened at one place and kind of spread or if it just kind of happened at all the places where the human trash piles were. It's actually indicated in ancient dog fossils that it happened just once. So it really? was like one, yeah. So just, just one here, dog? Yeah, Wynn can't say for sure whether the domestication process happened at multiple villages at different times or if it happened just once, as indicated by another recent study that looked at DNA from ancient dog fossils. So it's actually still too soon to know just how important the genes identified in the study were in dog domestication. I just imagine like an ancient golden retriever that is like yeah. the father of all dogs. <laughs> the next step is to test other domestic species because they haven't done this for cats yet Uh and see whether it's the same three genes that contribute to tamer temperaments hell yeah so i would love maybe one day when this podcast becomes super famous we get mamba and cheeseball tested (laughs) and i'm sure we will find that mamba is a sweet sweet boy and that cheese is a monster (laughs) she's like mamba has friends at the trash heap but cheese is the trash heap she is the she's like i'll cut you (laughs) Cheese stands alone on one of those like super old 90s Apple computers <laughs> at the trash heap with a little shard of its screen between her claws and she's like, don't fucking come here. <laughs> don't come near me. Don't oh, kill cheese. She can be very um, sweet to that little bed that you bought her when she like oh, goes to town. don't. I don't like that. No one likes it. <laughs> Have you ever seen Mitch? You ever seen a grown cat make out with a cat bed? <laughs> if not. <laughs> she like, she needs it and just like licks this one spot incessantly and it's disgusting. And then I'll be like, cheese. And she'll look around at me like, what? <laughs> and then she'll just go right back to it. Just right back to it. I made a TikTok about it. I'll send it to you, Mitch. <laughs> All I've been able to think about is just how my two dogs would react to the box test with the sausage in it. Uh, yeah. I, that would be completely different. Gus, Gus would have been like, fuck you, sausage. Yeah, yeah he yeah, eat the box. <laughs> he would have to get to it, yeah. Like, so Hash Brown is my golden boy. He's half lab, half German shepherd, pit bull mix. But he's, he, he would just sit there and stare at me the whole time because all he cares about is being around people. But Murray, you would have let him in. And you would be like, okay, so now, and he would have already torn open the box. And he'd just be oh. all about the sausage. 
He's, he's, he's a such demon. a good, sweet boy. <laughs> oh, well, I want to finish with just what I thought was the sweetest quote from Jocelyn Krebs. Jocelyn Krebs is a biomedical researcher um, who studied Williams syndrome. Not She wasn't involved with these new studies, but she has been involved in studying it. She has a son with Williams syndrome and she sits on the Williams Syndrome Association Board of Trustees. And she says, and it's just the sweetest, shortest quote, if they had tails, they would wag them. <laughs> that is a very sweet quote. <laughs> so I decided that in this fairly dark time to bring a story of just like some sweet people with a sweet condition and our true best friend, the dog. I appreciate that. I did feel like it was a good palate cleanser to uh, yeah. my census nightmare. Mitch, noted Bible scholar and attorney. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is your ruling? <laughs> um, so as far as points goes, also mm -hmm. wonderful palate cleanser. I'd, I'd okay. have, I mean, it's going to be up there. I'd probably say just a flat nine also. So I think you're tied. Oh, that's gorgeous. Did, and that's also part of me wants to keep the guests points still ahead i saw on your mm -hmm. instagram that wow and as, yeah, and as a representative of guest that's fair as that's big a, I mean, guest? <laughs> were you paid off by big guest <gasps> big guest <laughs> no! all of, you think all of our podcast guests got together and they were like hey mitch <laughs> you know what to do <laughs> fuck them up no because if max had been there he would have told them to like give us negative scores that had decimals in them so oh yeah true. he would yeah <laughs> He would have brought those decimals back. Well, that's a very exciting way to finish our first head-to-head, -head, Charles. That's true. Oh, my gosh. Mitch, thank you so much for being on this experimental episode of oh, What. Thank yes, you guys thank for What a king. Me. It's improved my day, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and you taught us something about the Alamo, which I was not expecting today. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a good thing, but it was definitely but it a good thing. But it was a thing. But it was a thing. We sure learned it. And now we know and we can't not know. So it's great. great. Knowledge is power. Absolutely. Mitch, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on Instagram at Mitchapalooza32. Type. Um, if they're interested. Is it because um, you were just... born in 1932? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's sure. actually because my birthday sure is March 2nd. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Can you also just let us know like your first pet? And the street yeah, that you lived on. Maiden day, maiden <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you on. Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche wherever internets are sold. And you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram or Ellie Main wait, no. Ellie Main on Instagram and Ellie Maney on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, I believe, at this point. Uh, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash what pod and you can check out our website at those two girls club for merch and other fun cool things uh, thank you guys nice thank you i hope your day gets better yeah i'm gonna start drinking yay <laughs> <laughs>